right, everybody needs their pens and pencils and paper for this segment because I'm going to give you some secret information that is not available in print. You're to write it down, memorize it, and then destroy it. <laughs> okay? And that's not because these are trade secrets. That's because what, I, what, I, what, what I've labeled this as here is, is Bob's safe list. And this is a list of primarily synthetic materials. We'll talk about organic materials too. But I want to talk about some of the synthetic materials that we can make use of in our gardens that to my way of thinking are far safer, more effective, and efficient than some of the potential organic sources for the same nutrients. And that is predicated on the chemistry of these compounds. All fertilizers are salts, first and foremost. Whether it's a chemical fertilizer or whether it is a synthetic or, or a, 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 an organic, natural, certified naturally organic compound, it is a salt. Salt can harm crops. Years ago, uh, when chicken manure was widely used on, on gardens, Growers that used chicken manure while it was too fresh had salt burn on their crops from the ammonia in the chicken manure. And uh, the important thing to understand when I say that these are safe is these are safe when used in accordance with the soil analysis and with the proper method of application. That's the disclaimer to this, and that's why I will not publish this. I want you to write this down if you want this information because you're not going to get a handout from me on this because I don't want somebody getting a copy of a handout saying, this is safe, look, urea is on Bob's list, so we can use as much urea as we want to anytime we want to and it's safe. No, please, that's not what I am saying at all. In fact, urea can be very, very harmful to your soil and to the microorganisms if it's not used appropriately. There are forms of urea, too, that are not safe and inappropriate to use. And the basis for, this, for, for the safety of the materials that I'm going to share with you has to do with their chemistry. In order to have a safe compound, it means that we have to understand the chemistry of the compound, okay? And I suggested earlier on that urea... 46% nitrogen, and here the numbers are important because what's on my safe list is urea, 46% nitrogen. There are going to be other items on here too. The numbers are as important as the words because there are ureas being sold out there that are also 45% nitrogen, 44% nitrogen, and in some instances as low as 42% nitrogen. Those are not on my list. Yes, it's urea, but it is not 46%. Why is it that the 46% urea is safe and the others may not be? And I'm not saying that they're not safe. I'm just saying they may not be. The things on my list I can guarantee you are safe because of the chemistry. And the way that we evaluate the chemistry is to look at the chemical formula for the compound. In the case of urea, this is the chemical formula, NH22CO. So we have nitrogen, hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen in this molecule. And based on molecular weight, nitrogen in this pure molecule is 46% of that molecular weight. So urea, that is 46% nitrogen, is pure urea. It's this and nothing else. Okay? If we look at a molecule of urea that comes out of the back end of a chicken or a cow, guess what the chemical formula is? It's NH22CO. It's the same chemistry. It's the same molecule that serves as the plant nutrient. That's what Rodale was referring to in his comment when he said that sometimes we organic growers are a little too zealous because urea is urea. Now, the difference is that the urea that comes out of the back end of a cow may only constitute 2% of the total volume of everything that comes out of the back end of the cow, and that 
the urea that comes out of a bag is 46% nitrogen, so it's far more concentrated. That has an advantage in terms of application and transportation, but it also leads to the potential for over-application, and that's not what I'm advocating here. But whether we apply, you know, five tons of cow manure to achieve our 150 pounds of nitrogen per acre that we need from, uh, from the nitrogen that's in that cow manure, or a few pounds of urea, to achieve that 100 pounds of nitrogen, the compound that is actually nourishing the plant is the same molecule. You got it? Okay, I'm adamant about this. Zinc sulfate, another example here. Zinc sulfate, 36%. This is the chemical formula for zinc sulfate, ZnSO4. If we evaluate the molecular weights of these different atoms in this compound, zinc occupies 36% of the total weight of that compound. Okay? Therefore, 36% zinc is pure zinc sulfate. Nothing else in there. And sulfate compounds, as I told you earlier, we have to be very careful about. Someone was asking me about KMAG earlier. And one of the problems with KMAG is it is not a pure compound because the sulfate portions in KMAG can be from byproducts and industrial wastes. And a lot of iron compounds, such as iron sulfate, uh, we have to be careful of because they can come from industrial wastes, and indeed many of them do. And it's not just because, hey, this is great fertilizer, it's because they've got a disposable, disposal problem on the factory side that the EPA has decided uh, is, 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 is a good way to mitigate that is to apply this to all the farmland across America. Same thing is true with sewage sludge. We have a lot of sewage sludge that's being incorporated into our fertilizers today too. Now a couple decades ago sewage sludge was legal to use on organic crops but because of so much heavy metal contamination and other uh, contaminants in it, they've removed it from the, from the national organic list, but it's still used a lot in commercial fertilizers. So by no means are all of them safe, and these are all the ones that I consider to be safe based on their molecular weight, okay? And I'll give you some time to write these down. And we have sources here for virtually everything that we'll need to apply in order to meet both the, uh, the primary, secondary, and micronutrient needs of our crops. And again, part of the reason that I suggest making use of these safe materials, initially at least in our gardens, is that we can exactly target the amounts that we're putting on because we have a known analysis, we can do the math and calculate precisely for how much of these things are gonna be in our soil. Now, when we were talking about our elements, there are two elements on our soil analysis that you need to pay particular attention to. And while you're writing this down, I'll share this with you. In most instances, I said that if we have too much of an element on our list, that's not necessarily a problem. But with two elements, it can be a problem. And those two elements are copper and boron. Copper and boron. Boron is necessary for plant growth, and the ideal uh, uh, amount of boron for our crops is about two parts per million. But when we get up to about four parts per million, it starts to become toxic to the plant. It accumulates in the tissue of the plant and starts to have toxicity effects on the plant. Not that it's toxic to you or me when we eat it, but it's harmful to the plant itself. When we get up to about 10 parts per million of boron, we can actually use boron as an herbicide because it will kill plants. And indeed, that's what I use as an herbicide in some situations on my farm. This isn't a certified organic method, but I actually use borax to keep the grass from growing under my electric fences around my garden area because I put on essentially a fertilizer in a lethal dose and prevent the, 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 the grass from growing under my fence line, and that keeps me from having to go out there and weed eat so frequently. Boron, borax. 20 mule team borax. <clears throat> All right. And it doesn't hurt the ground? Yes, it hurts the ground. It keeps things from growing from it. That's why I do it. 
but over time it's water soluble and eventually it doesn't hurt the ground long term, no, because it is water soluble and it will dissipate and leach through the soil over time. And two or three years after I make that application, you'd never know that it had been done. Okay. Can you all see this well enough? Get anybody see this? All right, now these materials I consider to be safe materials based on their analysis and based on how they're manufactured. Yes? Do you have a big store No. A big box stores won't carry any of these things. You will not find these things in the big box stores. I get my products, uh, some of these things, for, for some of you that are doing small home gardens, you can, you can, you can find some of these things at Amazon.com. I buy them from a large uh, uh, organic uh, uh, fertilizer supplier in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, called Lancaster Ag Products. Actually, they're in Ronks, Pennsylvania, but it's called Lancaster Ag Products. And depending on where you are in the country, you're going to need to do a little searching. But most good farm supplies, it's easier to find these things in the west than the east, by the way. And part of the reason for that is because of the large-scale agriculture out in the western states, especially California. And much of the uh, nursery industry out in the western states of Oregon and California make use of these pure products because they're growing things in containers. And the contamination that's in the fertilizers, they don't want in their, in, in, in their container growth because it, it can actually be damaging to the plants. So you have to do a little scouting around to find this stuff. No, not always. Most of them, yes. But you're going you're, you're to have to put, take this responsibility on your shoulders and seek these things out. And again, I want to point out, <clears throat> uh, you know, Many of these compounds, are, are we through with this list? Because there's a second page, and I'll go on to the second page if I may. What's the name of Lancaster? Lancaster Ag Products. <clears throat> okay. And on my website, again, there's a resource on my website where I list uh, where I get everything that I use, my seeds, my fertilizers, my tools. Uh, if you need a starting point, uh, you can use my website there, too. Uh, but again, I want to stress, and this is really, really important, that if you find an iron sulfate that is not 36%, it is not safe, folks. Okay? Because there's something more in that than just iron and sulfur. And that's very common. This is the product problem with uh, a compound that a lot of growers use called ironite. You may have seen it. They sell that at the big box stores because you green up your grass with it. And ironite is, is a combination of different uh, sulfates and oxides of minerals. And the iron sulfate that's in that is only 18%. And what that means is there's all kinds of extra goodies in that bag. And we don't know what those extra goodies are. And they can be very toxic. So uh, this is, is, is why this list is so specific and it's fairly small. And it... Uh, it, it's not necessarily going to be easy for you to find these things. Is All right? This, the borax, this is our 20 mule team borax. This is sodium uh, tetraborate. Uh, the solubore is sodium tetraborate pentahydrate. It's a slightly different formula. So this is an either or, not, 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 not anything in between 11 and 20. It's either 11% or 20%, okay? <clears throat> now, the other thing I'm frequently asked is, what about miracle Grow, Bob? Is miracle Grow safe to use? And, you know, uh, realistically, the answer to that is yes. It's perfectly safe to use. Uh, do I recommend that you use it? Well, no, I don't. Number one, it's extremely expensive for the amount of nutrient that you get within the box. Number two, it's a method of uh, supplying a water-soluble nutrient that nourishes the plant and not the soil, so you're not really addressing what's going on in the soil. But in terms of its purity, it's a very good product. Most water-soluble fertilizers are very good quality fertilizers because if there's anything extra in there, it doesn't dissolve. You know, it's, it's, it's just that simple. It's a good clean salt that dissolves. So yeah, miracle Grow is a good quality fertilizer. 
do I suggest it or do I, or do I recommend it or do I use it? No, I don't. Uh, in, in, in part because it doesn't fit the principles by which I grow and it's also extremely expensive when you compare it uh, pound for pound on a, on a nutrient basis. Sir, did you have a question? I don't use compost tea very much. I use it in my greenhouse uh, when I initially start my plants, and there's nothing wrong with using compost teas for nourishing plants. There's nothing wrong with using the vast array of, of things that are out there uh, naturally, especially if they're made from the compost that comes from your farm, for nourishing your plants. But what I'm, I'm, I'm listing now are, are, are the elements to reach that reservoir in our bank account of plant nutrients, and then I'm going to discuss some of the natural materials that are out there that we may want to avoid. Uh, compost tea is fine to use. How much nutrition are you putting on with that compost tea? We're blind. We don't know. The advantages primarily of compost tea is you're inoculating your soil with enzymes and with microorganisms that can help them better utilize some of these things. <laughs> So that's why I use the compost tea. I don't use it necessarily as a source of nutrition. I use it as a source of inoculation of my seedlings, especially when they're in the, in the six packs when I'm getting ready to transplant them uh, to, to, to help them make use of the nutrients in the soil more efficiently. Nothing wrong at all with compost tea. Uh, would I rely only on compost tea to nourish my crops? No, I wouldn't. And in fact, this is a good time, too, to address the fact that we can nourish plants through the leaves as well as the root system. And there are quite a few people in organic agriculture today that are advocating, advocating the use of various different mixtures or concoctions for spraying on your plants. And, uh, you know, the, the, the recipes vary widely. Often they incorporate things like, like molasses and, and other stuff for your, for your plants. Um, I'm not an advocate of that because to me, uh, when, when the Lord designed a plant, he designed them with a root system for a reason and the root system does the work of pulling the nutrients out of the soil. And if you've got good, uh, healthy soil with the right balance of nutrients and the right microbiology in that soil, you should have no need for a foliar, foliar application of a fertilizer. Indeed, that's how many of the micronutrient deficiencies are addressed in commercial agriculture is with chelated minerals that are absorbed by the leaves and things like zinc deficiency or calcium deficiency or iron deficiency in commercial crops are usually addressed by spraying a small amount of that very highly water-soluble material on the leaf. But it never corrects the problem in the soil. And that's one of the reasons I don't recommend uh, the, the use of foliar uh, uh, applications. The other is that it tends to unbalance the plant, meaning that you provide the plant's nutrition through the leaves, the root systems aren't developing and foraging as they should, and if you go through a period of dry weather, you don't have enough root system there to support the plant, so they become much more susceptible to damage from, from climate, from wind injury, or from wilt. Kaylin, did you have a comment? I can do that now. Uh, we uh, talked earlier today about the capacity of legume family plants to live in a symbiotic relationship with rhizobia bacteria. And in that relationship, the rhizobia bacteria are able to, to make use of atmospheric nitrogen and convert it into protein within the root system of the plant that can then be released into the soil as a source of nitrogen for the, for, for the crop that you're growing. Uh, an, an example of this is, is, is clover. We can grow a clover crop, and if rhizobia are, are colonizing the root system of that clover, uh, when that clover is plowed down, we have a residue of protein, a residue of that nitrogen in the soil that the subsequent crop can, can utilize and, and meet its demand. Uh, the term inoculation refers to treating the seed with live cultures of rhizobia bacteria. And there are a number of products on the market for doing this. They are, are uh, Johnny's Seed markets, a couple of different ones. And there are different strains of rhizobia depending on what, uh, what uh, species of, of, of plant you're inoculating. There are rhizobias that work very well on the clover and the vetch. 
there are other rhizobias that are used on, on alfalfa, and there are some combination packages of a wide range of rhizobia uh, for any, uh, any legume crop. And essentially what you do is you shake a little bit of this live culture into your, into your cedar or coat the seed with it, uh, apply a little moisture to your seed and coat the seed with it, and then plant the seed so that the, uh, the inoculant is right there. As the root emerges, the root is immediately colonized, and you have a proliferation of the, uh, uh, of, of, of the population of the rhizobia for that field. Now, um, what I suggest doing is that if you are growing legumes in that field for the first time in a period of three to five years, then it's very prudent to inoculate the seed. If you're growing on a, on a regular basis, and I consider that to be within a three to five year period of time, if you're growing legumes in that field, and they don't have to be clovers, they can be the beans or the soybeans or any other legume, uh, then there's no need to inoculate because you've got dormant uh, 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 spores or dormant, dormant bacteria in the soil that, th that can remain viable. They form cysts and remain viable in the soil for three to five years. So there's no sense doing this if you don't need to. And because of our crop rotation schemes, I get, I get a cover crop, a legume cover crop, at least once every three years on my ground. So I inoculated the seed the first time I, I, I did that, but I haven't done it since. But that's essentially what, what we mean by inoculating. Um, <clears throat> now, in, in terms of, I'm, I'm going to diverge here a little bit for a moment, too, and talk about other uh, biological additives uh, that are being sold for our soils today. And, you know, there are some advantages to biological ad additives. Uh, in fact, Monsanto right now has a whole department devoted to uh, inoculants for crops. And, you know, Monsanto's not particularly uh, looked upon as a source for great nutritional studies or care about human food. They're, they're concerned about production. And, you know, believe me, if something is really effective, if something really works the way many of these things are promoted to work, commercial agriculture will adopt it in a heartbeat because the dollars at stake in commercial agriculture dwarf anything that you and I can imagine. I mean, they literally dwarf it. And if a product comes along that's sold in the, in the, in the gardening magazines that you're reading really worked as they say it worked, uh, large commercial growers would adopt it overnight. And that's not the case in most situations because many of the claims that are being made are, are frankly spurious claims or they're not well scientifically founded. But in the case of Monsanto's research into inoculants, they're working with two and only two soil microorganisms. One of those is rhizobia because Monsanto also happens to be the largest marketer of legume seed in the world, soybeans. And because the culture of the soybean in modern monoculture agriculture is basically to use a sterile soil medium and to kill off all the microbiology with either Roundup or, uh, or, or other herbicides and tank mixes and in the fertilizers that are used to grow these things, they're growing the soybeans in a sterile soil and they realize there's an advantage to inoculating those soybeans with rhizobia to reduce the amount of nitrogen fertilizer that has to be applied. So that's one example of a mainstream agricultural use of a soil inoculant. The second example is mycorrhizal fungi. They are looking specifically at a mycorrhizal strain for their corn varieties for much of the same reason. They demand so much effort out of these corn plants to get the yields that they're getting that and, and the cost of phosphorus uh, for, for phosphorus fertilization has, has skyrocketed over the past five or ten years. The, the price of phosphates has quintupled in the last six years uh, that they're looking at mycorrhizal fungi to inoculate the seed of their corn varieties, again, to help with their capacity for bringing phosphorus to the plants. Those are the only two commercial applications of soil inoculants. And those are things that we've known about for many years and we've understood the associations. There are lots of other microbes being sold today that we have very, that have, to my way of thinking, a very 
um, a shady um, uh, marketing tactic, and that is that if you put this stuff on your ground, you're going to increase the biology in your soil, and that's going to help your plant growth. Um, most of the claims of those various different potions and lotions and stuff are not well scientifically documented. And none of them, none of them that I have ever examined or seen in use is cost effective, meaning that you do not recoup the cost of the product in increased plant growth or yield. So I'm not a strong advocate of adding some of the materials that are widely being marketed today to our soils to increase growth. We do know that mycorrhizal fungi help with phosphorus uptake. I'm not opposed to the use of mycorrhizal fungi. But what I will tell you is that the fungi, uh, the term mycorrhizae is a very, very broad term that simply means fungus that inhabits the roots of plants. And there are thousands of different strains of mycorrhizae, quite literally thousands of them. And they're very, very specific to specific families of plants. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not one organism that is a mycorrhizae. We're talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands, of different strains of mycorrhizae. And if the mycorrhizae that we're applying to our crop is not one that has a symbiotic relationship with the crop that we're planting, we're not getting any effect from that either. And that's part of the challenge that we're faced with today in the way that things are marketed to us. So I'm very skeptical of most of the, um, as I said, lotions and, and potions that are being uh, sold on the market today. There's some work being done with enzymes. Uh, to add enzymes to the soil. There's some work being done with various different vitamins uh, to, to add to the soil to benefit uh, different crops. And, and, and frankly, uh, the research uh, is, is still out on all of that. The jury is out on that research. We don't have scientific proof of most of this. And uh, because it's so attractive uh, to our, uh, our consumer-oriented minds today to find safe and and inexpensive ways to, uh, to, to help uh, you know, grow our crops, we're always looking for that magic bullet. We're looking for that pill that's going to cure cancer uh, for our plants. And uh, we're being exploited in, in the process of doing that. I think it's important for us to keep in mind that when the Lord asked us to grow our food, uh, he didn't mean that we had to be biochemists, and he didn't necessarily mean that we had to understand all of the intricacies of the marketplace in order to select the right root inoculant or the right bacterial concoction to put in our compost tea uh, to make that happen. It should be a pretty straightforward and simple process. And really, even though we've talked about a lot of complicated things today, it's really been pretty simple. When you break it down to the fundamentals of the principles that we've talked about today, it's really pretty simple. We get the right balance of chemistry and the right amounts, and the biology will oftentimes pretty much take care of itself. And as long as we're uh, 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 you know, judicious in how we uh, make use of, of the crops and we don't overstrip the soil and we replace that which we do not use, uh, we, can, we can do a fine job of maintaining a very highly productive soil with a minimum of inputs. You had a comment. No, it, it depends on what you grow. If, if you want one for begonias, I, I know of a, a good strain that works for begonias. If you want one for peas, yes, you can find one for peas. But no, you've got to do your research on it. And, and uh, the reality is that most of those that cater to home gardeners, and you know, I have a lot of respect for Johnny's Seeds. They have some very good products, but they some sell a lot of inoculants that re they really don't know much about. And most of the rhizobia that they're selling have no influence on the, on the plant families of vegetables that, that we grow. So where is so, a good source to research to find out Most university papers, primarily. And, 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 and go straight to the source. Or, and, and if you want to look, look at Monsanto's website and the research that they've done with corn. Uh, the reality is these things are not economically viable um, for, for the most part. And the other issue with, with mycorrhizae, you know the initial work that was done on mycorrhizal fungi had nothing to do with food production. It was done for the ornamental industry because they were growing plants in, in container 
culture and they wanted plants that would have better resistance to drying out because you know when you pay somebody minimum wage to take care of a million dollars worth of nursery stock inventory at the Walmart uh, nursery center and that guy calls out sick or comes back 15 minutes late from his break and doesn't get something watered they didn't want to lose inventory so that's where that's where the initial uh, uh, research started to take place and that was the initial uh, uh, a product line that was developed was specifically for for flowering plants and nursery stock and then it's been adapted for for trees and grapes and 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 some of our vegetable crops too but none of the ones that I have looked at are specific enough in the description of the product to indicate whether it's going to be beneficial or not for for our garden plants now my particular perspective on this is that if we have a healthy soil and by healthy soil, I mean we don't just have lots of, of microbiology in our soil, but we have a diversity of microbiology in our soil, that when we put the right host there, especially over a period of a year or two, we're going to develop those right strains appropriate to the crops that we're growing, perhaps over a year or two, or maybe three, but eventually it's going to happen. Because most of these microorganisms are really quite ubiquitous in the environment. That means they're everywhere, just like the disease organisms are pretty much everywhere today. So I don't think there is great advantage in, in investing a lot in organic uh, microbiology. I know there's another program that's taking place here today that is, is diametrically opposed to what I'm saying. And I'm just sharing this based on my perspective, on my understanding of the science, and what I have actually seen going on because there are folks out there that are advocating today that you can just use biology to, to, to make your plants flourish. Uh, fundamentally, if your baseline chemistry isn't correct, I don't just disagree with that a little bit, I strongly disagree with that, because science doesn't establish that. We do not have the evidence of that. Yes? No, no, these are safe to use anytime. I was explaining the advantage of using a known material for your initial building of that, of that, of that nutrient base, but no, these are safe to use anytime. Anytime, okay? Uh, not that you have to, but, but they are safe to use, okay? <clears throat> so this is the list of the synthetic stuff that I consider to be safe, but I also have a list things of organic fertilizers where I say proceed with caution and proceed with great caution in some instances and avoid entirely in others. Now, most of us that want to go green, we, we want to, you know, we want to stay with, with, with the cottonseed meal or we want to stay with the soybean meal. We want to stay with something that's, that's natural. Folks, just because something is natural does not mean it's safe. Just because something is natural does not mean it's safe, okay? We need to get that through our heads. The reason that I don't like soybean meal is because the vast majority of soy meal, soybean meal that's available for agricultural application, A, is not cost effective. The benefit you get from the application of soybean meal does not outweigh the cost of the application of that soybean meal. It's not cost effective. The second reason that I don't like the use of soybean meal is the vast majority of it is derived from genetically modified soybeans that have been sprayed with Roundup. So there's Roundup residue in there. And there's also genetically modified proteins in that that I do not want in my garden. Okay? I don't consider it safe. Cottonseed meal. Cotton is not a food crop, so consequently there are herbicides and pesticides registered for use on cotton that are extraordinarily toxic, that have very, very long half-lives, and that do not dissipate as that cottonseed meal is moved from uh, its, its, its source through the marketing chain and eventually to your garden. Cotton is one of the most polluted crops that is grown on the planet today. So no, cottonseed meal is not, to my way of thinking, a uh, safe and effective method. Alfalfa is a great fertilizer, and it's a great source if you find good quality, clean alfalfa pellets. But that's becoming difficult to do too, again, because alfalfa is not a human food crop. There are 
pesticides, insecticides specifically, that are used on alfalfa that are not registered for use on human food. And those residues are in those alfalfa pellets. And today, also, alfalfa is widely genetically modified. So for that reason, I don't see that that is an appropriate use. Now, when I finish my list here, I want to talk about alfalfa some more, because it has a real position in our gardens that I don't want to go overlooked. But as far as going down and buying commercial sources of any of these things, no, stay away from it. Fish products. I uh, was just asked about that a few minutes ago. I do not advocate the use of fish products either on my food. And um, the, 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 the primary reason for that is, A, it stinks, and I don't like to be around it. But B, heavy metal contamination in fish today is a known source of, of, of problems. I mean, even our, our own CDC has told pregnant women not to eat fish more than once a month. Folks, that tells us something, you know? So, uh, you know, I'm not going to eat the fish. I'm just going to put all of its parts all over my garden, and I'm going to eat what comes up. No, it doesn't make sense, does it? So, uh, you know, fish, fish waste and, and fish products are not suitable uh, either. Uh, commercial composts I would avoid. A, because we don't have a clue what's in them, folks. We don't know what's there. A lot of uh, municipalities today are, are composting tree leaves and grass clippings and all kinds of stuff. It's great to make use of that stuff, but do you know where the greatest point source of pollution from pesticides exists? It's not on the farms of America. It's on the front lawns of America. It's in suburbia. Suburbia is far more polluted with pesticides than our food uh, producing regions of this country, and those things get composted too, and in the commercial compost that you're buying, these things are, are present. And we've already discussed some of my challenges with the use of, of manures and things like feather meal and bone meal and blood meals, uh, you know, the, 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 the potential for, for real uh, toxicities in these things is, is very real and very high. Now, if you have manure from your neighbor's sheep, available to you, and that neighbor uh, grazes his sheep on pastures that are, that are clean pastures, and uh, you, know, you know what you're getting, uh, by all means make use of it. You know, if you've got a few chickens in the backyard and you're feeding them good clean feed and they're, you know, healthy animals, no reason not to use manures if you know what you're getting. The problem is that when we buy stuff commercially, we're often, get, often getting a lot of extras, more than we think we're buying. So be, be very cautious about these things. Again, the use of cover crops will mitigate our need for the use of a lot of these additives to our soils. And when it comes to the additives and inoculants in our soils, I'm not a particular fan of doing that. This is one that is being sold right now. Uh, I don't remember where... Uh, where I pulled this particular one up, a Dr. Earth Superactive Soil Inoculant. And it tells us what's in here, micronized concentrated seaweed extract. Okay, how do you concentrate seaweed? I'm curious, yeah, anyway. Concentrated seaweed extract, okay. Whey protein, high fructose corn sugar. High fructose corn sugar. And beneficial soil microbes. Says who? Who says they're beneficial? What microbes are they to start with? Okay. Essential nutrients loaded with bioavailable multi-minerals. Great stuff, huh? Dr. Earth. Super, super name, you know. This must be good stuff. Okay, $6.96 for a package of a few ounces. Okay, and there's probably some rhizobia in here. There's probably some strains of mycorrhizae in there. I mean, they, I'm, I'm not trying to disparage the, the, the product because I imagine they're probably doing this with, with good intentions of making lots of money. Uh, but, uh, you know, this isn't scientific stuff, folks. But people are eating this up quite literally. They're buying this stuff like crazy, and it's expensive. It's expensive. So, you know, be, be, be cautious and be careful and realize that just because something is natural does not mean it's safe. Okay? Now, I want to talk about alfalfa for a minute. I don't have a slide for this. 
So we'll just go back and look at my hayfield here for a little while. <clears throat> but I want to conclude today uh, uh, kind of along the lines that I shared with you earlier that we as Seventh-day Adventists need to be aware that at any moment we can be put into a position of not being able to sell what we produce or purchase what we need for our needs, right? This is one of the reasons I think it's really important that all of us become skilled in growing food, at least for ourselves and our families. It's essential for a variety of reasons. In fact, it's essential today that we know that because the food that we buy down at the store, frankly, in most cases, is not worth buying. When it comes to our health, it's not worth buying. There should be a hazardous materials placard in front of every grocery store today. And I'm not joking. This is, I'm not being sarcastic here. I'm, I'm speaking truth here. If we want our health, we need to realize that we've got to take some responsibility on our shoulders and actually do what we've been called to do. And in the process of doing that, we've got to accelerate our level of involvement, activity, and interest in this endeavor. I'm glad to see all of you here this week. This is a real blessing. And for those of you that are here and haven't gardened before, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I know this may seem very daunting to many of you when we get into discussing numbers and algebra and materials and chemistry and all of that, but focus on the principles. As you reflect on what we've covered today, focus on the principles, and you'll discover pretty quickly that they're pretty simple principles. That we are able to do this. And one of the things that I'm concerned about as we go into the future, even for myself that has lots of experience in agriculture, is that period of no buy and, and, and no sell is here today in many ways. Because of the Food Safety Modernization Act, the ceiling on the income I can generate for my farm without jumping through all kinds of governmental hoops has been established for me. That I'm at the economy of scale right now where I generate about $25,000 a year from farm sales off of my farm. We actually sell a little bit more than that. But if I sell more than $25,000 worth of product from my farm this year, I've got to start jumping through all kinds of government hoops. That means I need another professional on the farm to deal with the paperwork. Okay? That's no sell, folks. Now, fortunately, in my circumstance, I can survive on that. I can do okay. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for retirement anyway. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 60s, but if I was in my 30s looking at... At, at growing my family, I couldn't survive on that. I need an income two or three or four times that much. And if you want to seek that, you've got some challenges in place for you in the next few years that weren't there just a year or two ago. That's just one example. What, what, uh, what is that they put in place? The Food Safety Modernization Act, FSMA. If you get to a certain point, the layer of regulation becomes so onerous that I need to hire someone to meet those regulation points. I have to track my, my, my production, my crop, from my field to the fork that consumes it. I can't sell anything beyond a 275-mile radius of my farm. I can't uh, 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 basically service the, 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 the school industry without being GAP certified, which has a layer of expense too. There are a lot of onerous aspects to this that are in place today that weren't in place just, just a short while ago. These are important things to understand. And it's not just that I can't sell the food, I can't even give it away if I get beyond that level. <clears throat> Pardon? I can't even give it away. I'm out of compliance if I give it to my neighbor across the street. So it's, it's just, I don't want to get all involved in that right now. And I don't want to intimidate you for those of you that are looking at going into agriculture either. Just be aware that you're dealing with a whole set of regulation that wasn't in place uh, six months ago. It's been a decade in the coming, and it's finally here. All right? But it has an impact on, on our economics. There are other ways that no buy, no sell manifests itself too, and I mentioned that earlier, and that is the supply 
and the demand issue because of global agriculture means that a lot of those things on Bob's safe list, you're going to have a hard time finding today. And I don't know tomorrow whether it's going to be more difficult or not, or when the time will come when you can't buy that. I know when it comes to seed, because of consolidation in the seed industry, that a lot of the varieties of plants that I like to grow that are hybrids that I need to buy the seed for, I can't get seed for anymore. Some of the best varieties of our vegetables for, for home garden use and for small market gardening aren't available anymore. Why? Because we have a couple of large multinational corporations that have bought up all the seed companies and they know which ones they want to eliminate because they're competing with the seeds that they're trying to promote. So we have this manifesting itself in a variety of different ways. And one of the things that I really want to do is to become, and you know, I'm always reliant on the Lord, but I want to be as self-sufficient as possible on my farm because I don't want to just grow the food for me and my family. We've got, a, we've got a community that relies on us now. We sell a lot at our local farmer's market. We have friends and neighbors and acquaintances in a school district that depend on the food that we produce and have come to appreciate it. So I want to be able to continue that even when I can't bring inputs in. And one of the methods that I want to make use of in accomplishing that is to get the most out of all of these other materials that I have already in place in my bank account in my soil. And one of the ways that I can extend the longevity of my productivity is by using a very, very special plant, alfalfa. Alfalfa is a remarkable plant. In fact, it's unfortunate that we've never developed taste buds to appreciate alfalfa because it would be one of the healthiest things that we could eat. Alfalfa is unique because, number one, it's a perennial. It grows for a long period of time, typically five to six years of a productive life. The other aspect of alfalfa that makes it very unique for the purposes I'm going to describe is that it has an extremely deep root system. Out in California, in the Sacramento Valley, where I'm from, the root systems of alfalfa plants can go down 30 feet. All right? So it's a great forager, and those root systems go down into those deep layers of soil, and they move those nutrients back up to the surface for me. So any of those anion compounds or any of the materials that we've added to the soil that have leached past the root zone, they bring them right back up for us. Alfalfa is also a legume, so it fixes nitrogen, and it's high in protein, and it can be used in a variety of different ways on our farm. Typically, we, you know, we feed alfalfa to, to, to cattle, and to dairy cattle specifically, because it's so high in nutrition, high in protein, that the cattle produce good quality milk. But if we cut the cow out of the equation and just use the alfalfa, the alfalfa is actually more nutritious than the cow manure. It's quite a bit higher in phosphorus, for example. So by taking my garden size and planting an equal volume of alfalfa adjacent or nearby my garden, I can plant a crop of alfalfa. Now this isn't free fertilizer because we've got to take care of the alfalfa. It needs pest control and weed control and irrigation and and establishment too, but if I, if I prepare two pieces of land, I determine, for example, that I need an acre of land for my needs, uh, garden productivity for my needs, if I take a second acre and plant it to alfalfa and use what I cut from that field as mulch and compost and fertilizer for my production field, I can do that for a period of five or six years. And if on the seventh year I choose to rest my land, I can move my garden from where it was over to where the alfalfa field was and rely on all of the accumulated rhizobia nodules and the root systems of that alfalfa to nourish my crops for an additional year while I rest my land. It's a very interesting concept. And because those roots are so deep and because they're nitrogen fixers, they're pulling up in a recycling fashion much more efficiently than any other plant that I can make use of for that purpose, as well as fixing nitrogen for me. So that's something, that's just a seed I want to plant with all of you. But that is the concept that I have for developing a sustainable 
method of producing food over a long period of time. Now, when we talk about sustainable agriculture, this is another pet peeve of mine. I'm, I guess it's the end of the day and I'm getting tired, so you know, I'm getting ornery now. One of my pet peeves is this word sustainable when we apply it to agriculture. There's nothing about agriculture that is sustainable. In fact, there is nothing about any energy system that is sustainable. There is a principle of entropy in this world too, and everything is subject to entropy. And when we use the term sustainable in agriculture, we're deceiving ourselves. This world is going to continue to wax older and older. The influence of sin on this planet is going to accelerate and increase in proportion to the magnitude of the sin that's taking place. And it doesn't matter, folks, whether we do everything right or not, we're still going to have problems. And we're still going to have energy loss in the system. And when we use that word sustainable, it conjures the concept that we've got a closed loop system. And this is another issue that I have with that Back to Eden video, is it, 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 it appeals to that mindset. But that's not a sustainable system, and neither are our farms, and neither is this model of using alfalfa over a period of time. It can sustain me for a few years, but eventually those minerals are going to deplete and uh, the, the system will break down and no longer be effective. So please, don't use the term sustainable and agriculture in the same sentence, okay? They don't belong together. We, we, can, we can describe a system of minimizing our footprint, minimizing our demand on the land, minimizing our demand on resources, but to use the word sustainable with the word agriculture is deceiving, and we don't want to be a part of that deceit. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.